Hey Life Kin, Roger here, one of the directors. So glad that you're joining us, whether you're a first time listener or a returning one. If you're a returning one, welcome back. You know we're in our love equals cross nope that's backwards in our cross equals love series right now which we do every year and this year it's, it's been really cool to go through the text of isaiah 53 in the way that we have uh, if you're a brand new listener though i also want to welcome you i'm um, just encourage you to get plugged in we believe that you belong to this god and, and therefore you belong to this community so be sure to fill out a connect card for us you can do that on our church center app or online on our website so we can get you plugged in answer any questions you may have, get you serving, all that good stuff. Either way, though, I want to remind you, as I do every week, that God is up to just so much in this community and the lives of not only our congregation members, but our surrounding community. If you want to support the vision of this church that has been placed on us by God, which is to reclaim our identity and also bear the torch of Jesus' justice and love into the community, then I would encourage you to support that financially with your giving and tithing. You can do that via our Church Center app or online as well. But today, like I said, we're in our Cross Equals Love series, and you'll be hearing a message from Pastor Jared talking about the importance of our words and how we say things and how that relates to the cross. So give that a listen, and I'll catch up with you in just a moment. Amen. Amen. Before you're seated, before you're seated, just one more moment. Go ahead and close your eyes. Think about that lyric. I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. I don't know what you walked in here with. I don't know what you're experiencing right now. I don't know what hardship you have at home or what diagnosis you're dealing with or what relational struggle you're working through. But you are already loved. You're already chosen. If you agree with that, go ahead and say amen. 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 Go ahead and take a seat. I'm glad that you're here. Welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time here, welcome. We're glad that you are here too. Make sure that you get connected. Um, or maybe if you have kids, you got your kids connected already. And then uh, there might be a QR code that comes up on the screen. That is our digital connect card. You can scan that with your phone and it'll take you to that connect card. You can fill out some information about yourself and then we can uh, take help you take a next step. If you have trouble with any of that and you just want to talk to a real life person out in the lobby, you're certainly welcome to do that as well. Uh, we are in a series called Cross Equals Love, uh, a couple weeks into the series, and we've been talking about that for a bit as, uh, as it's portrayed in Isaiah chapter 53. It's an Old Testament passage. It's a prophetic book. If you're newer to the Bible and you don't know about it, that's okay. Uh, we'll go through just a little section of it today, but Isaiah 53 speaks about this suffering servant. And we believe that that is pointing to Jesus hundreds of years later in the New Testament. And so if you want to go there right now, you can. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 53 in just a second. But I wonder if you can finish this phrase for me first. Finish this phrase. It's not what you say, it's perfect. You know what I'm talking about. So maybe sometimes you find yourself in an argument or a, a conversation. Maybe it gets a little heated at times. Maybe you get offended uh, by somebody, something somebody said, and, and then you respond with, well, it's not necessarily what you said, but it was how you said it. It was your tone. It was your demeanor. I felt some kind of way about what you said, right? Uh, you've used this phrase or you felt the, the, the effects of this phrase before. I think this relates actually a lot to 
what we're going to be talking about today relates a lot to the scriptures, in fact. In fact, I grew up in the church. I grew up learning a ton about the Bible. I went to Sunday school class. I went to sermons. We went to Sunday night church. I mean, it was filled with the Bible, filled with scripture. And along the way, uh, I found that a lot of people had a certain kind of reaction to what was said in the scriptures. And it wasn't so much what was said, but how it was presented. Some of you grew up in church like that as well, where uh, you were maybe turned off a little bit by some of the things that were said or how certain things were said. Uh, as I'm going to share a little bit later on, that's become actually quite the predominant perspective. In fact, in seminary, I spent uh, the end of my time in seminary writing my master's thesis on this specific topic, actually, about how young people, specifically millennials, my generation, are turned off by the Bible and why they think it's you know, not trustworthy, it's not relevant, it doesn't have anything to say for a modern world. And there's tons of data to back that up. And I began to wonder in my thesis work, well, is it an issue of maybe not so much what is said or what's in the Bible, but how the Bible has been presented? Maybe if there's just a different way to approach it, that people could be brought back to the scriptures. That, w- that was what my work focused on. Well, the passage that we're going to look at today actually starts to provoke certain feelings within me in the ways that I grew up and the ways that the Bible and other scriptures were presented to me and images of God and images of the cross and what love means and how do I, how do I work all of that out in my head and in my heart. So I want to look at that and then we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 6 to 7. I'm just going to read all the way through and then we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit. It says this, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Some of you have heard these verses before, seen these verses. Uh, Maybe you grew up in church and you heard verses like this before, and you might look at them and be like, Yeah, that that makes sense. I I realize it's a prophetic text. It's an Old Testament text. Hundreds of years before Jesus even shows up on the scene. But, you know, we grew up learning that, well, that suffering servant, that's actually the person of Jesus who shows up. And so, yeah, it all makes sense. We're we're sinful. We've gone astray. But Jesus uh, is compared to a lamb who who was slaughtered. He was the lamb that was slain. He was killed on a cross. And so we would say, this is this is pretty much the gospel. This is the gospel summed up in these two verses alone. We, that's how most of us, if we grew up in church, would say that. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The cross equals love. That's how we think about that. That's how we define the gospel. Would, what if I told you, would you believe me, that a lot of people, this isn't necessarily as cut and dry. This isn't as simple to them. That this isn't actually provoking any sense of of hope or solution that, in fact, verses like these bring about a whole lot of dread and despair. Because they, they look at verses like this, that we've all gone astray and, and he was oppressed, he was treated harshly. It begins to be a little bit confusing because it feels like a whole lot of shame for me, but also confusing views of God in that there's, man, there's a whole lot of violence going on here. And man, all I've been told is that God is love and Jesus is God's son, but here it just looks like cosmic child abuse. It just looks like pure violence. And so it's really hard for people to reconcile that in their minds. 
And that's actually the predominant view of God that was presented to me growing up in church and youth group and Bible camps and those kinds of things. In fact, uh, that was such a predominant view that I, I had to develop certain images in my head of what I thought God was like. I'll give you one image that I had. Uh, how many of you know the movie Home Alone? I know it's weird to reference a Home Alone Christmas movie in March. I get that. But there's this scene in Home Alone. It's in the very beginning of the movie. Kevin McAllister, the main character, is just causing all kinds of chaos. And eventually, you know, there's pizza everywhere. He spills the Pepsi. And it's just, it's a crazy scene. And at one point, his uncle, Uncle Frank, stands up and he, you know, brushes off the pizza and the Pepsi that's all over him. And he gets up and there's this scene and he says, look what you did, you little jerk. You know this scene? This image of Frank, Uncle Frank, look what you did, you little jerk, is the image that I developed of God. Look what you did, you little jerk. Based in what was presented and how it was presented to me. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Look what you did, you little jerk. Jesus had to go to the cross for you. Way to go. Look what you did. That, that's Genuinely how I felt about God, that God was frustrated with me. God was disgusted with me and the wayward choices that I've made. I've gone astray. Look what I did. Oh, goodness. And in fact, it was actually quite effective. I, I did feel that way. I, did, I felt that sense of, of shame and guilt. And they're like, yeah, I, man, I, I made Jesus cry because of what I did, because of the choices that I made, I personally made Jesus go to the cross. Man, I'm a, I am a horrible person. And yeah, if I were God, I wouldn't want to be in my presence either. Oh, look what I did. Some of you had this view of God growing up. And for me, I, w- I went to Bible camp uh, every summer. And at the beginning of the week, and we'd get there on, on Sunday afternoon and Sunday to Monday, Tuesday, it was all of that. It was, it was spending time telling all of these, you know, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids how they've gone wayward, how they are horrible people and that because of their disgusting sin, it's kind of like a disease and God can't be in that presence because he's perfect and man, he can't even be with you. But by the end of the week, we got to hear about the cure of Jesus. And I would get that little shot in my arm. I would get Jesus at the end of the week and I would pray a particular prayer. And then I'd go throughout the whole rest of the year, you know, backsliding, going, going wayward once again and be like, well, I better sign up for camp again. I better go back to camp. And then I'd go back to camp the next summer and I'd get reminded of all of the disgusting, horrible things about myself and how I was wayward. And, but then I got Jesus again toward the end of the week. And, and toward the end of the week, I was like, well, okay, so last year I didn't feel all that great. Maybe I just prayed the wrong prayer. Maybe it didn't take last year. So, so maybe I'll do it just a little bit differently and maybe Jesus will love me a little bit more this summer. But then, you know, the next year would come along and and I would do it all over again. I would just repeat this process and it developed within me this anxiety of God viewing me like, look what you did, you little jerk. And me feeling like I'm just not gonna be good enough. I'm not gonna measure up. I'm not gonna say the right prayer. It's never gonna be okay. And there was always this shame and fear and anxiety in my life. Maybe even begin to use verses like this. All of us like sheep have gone astray. And we've said things like, well, sheep are dumb, right? And yeah, that's true. They're not the smartest animals in uh, the animal kingdom. But imagine hearing that over and over as 11, 12, 13-year-old kid, the psyche of hearing you're dumb, you're disgusting, you can't be in God's presence, but Jesus. Imagine what that does. 
over the course of several years of teenage and young adulthood, and then even into adulthood. And many of you are now having to peel back the layers of the fear and shame that was connected to the gospel. Think about that. Fear and shame-based gospel. You know that word gospel means good news? Doesn't that sound like a contradiction to you? Fear and shame-based good news. Yay. Uh, It doesn't compute, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But here's the thing. My story isn't in isolation. It's not some sort of random uh, anomaly, right? Like this is the story of a whole lot of people. The internet and podcasts are riddled with stories of people who are what we call deconstructing their faith. They are peeling back the layers that they were given in churches, in youth groups, in Bible camps, layers of manipulation and abuse that was connected to the good news. And so now they're wrestling with it. And they're leaving churches and they're giving up on the Bible and they're wrestling with verses like this, like, how do I, how do I deal with this? And some, would pe- some people would say, well, yeah, those deconstructors, well, that's, they just couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle the gospel because the gospel is offensive. How many of you have heard that, that phrase before? The gospel is offensive. It's been said a lot. I've even said it before as well. The gospel's offensive. Gospel's offensive. We say it over and over. We've probably heard it over and over to the point where we began to believe that it's actually a verse in the Bible. It's not. But there are verses that maybe people point to. Where Paul would say, well, yeah, the, the gospel is a stumbling block, or the cross is a stumbling block to Jews. It's, it's, it's foolishness to Gentiles. People don't get it, right? Or I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And, and I get why, why people would land on that phrase, that the gospel is offensive. It can offend our sensibilities. It can seem a little strange to talk about the violence of the cross, and that's hard to reconcile. It can affect our worldview and how we see God. But the leading headline of the scriptures is not to offend us. And even if it's true that the gospel is offensive, can we all just agree that we're not supposed to be offensive? That's not the goal. Hey, welcome to church. How might I offend you today? It's, it's confusing, but at the same time, it doesn't mean we don't confront verses like this. It doesn't mean we can sideswipe the text. It takes a little bit more work. It takes a little bit more nuance. Let's look back at verse six for just a second. It says this, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Is this a matter of, well, it's not what you say, but it's how you say it. Could I present this in a different way that, man, doesn't, doesn't sound so harsh? Some of the things that we do have to do, we do have to address the context. And we're not great at doing that in the American modern church. We just go right to, well, what does this verse mean for me? No, we need to stop and say, well, first of all, it wasn't even written to us. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. This is written, as Roger said last week, to a very specific people group. This is written to Jews. This is written to the people of God, the Israelite people. We have to understand the context of where they're at when they receive this prophetic message. And what he said was that this is a moment in time, a very brief moment in time for the people of God, where they uh, had experienced just a little bit of power and prestige. Most of their story is filled with oppression and violence, and they're on the receiving end of that violence. But now, for just a moment, 
They've got a little bit of power. They've got a little bit of control. Things are kind of going well. And the problem with that, though, is is that they began to believe that it was out of their own abilities, out of their own merit, out of their own effort that they achieved this power. And God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, you have gone astray. You have forgotten that I was the one that cared for you, that I was the one that protected you in the wilderness. I've always been the one. I've been Jireh, provider. You have forgotten that. You've gone your own way. That's who he's speaking to. They've become an idolatrous people, which is just a fancy word for they've worshipped the created things instead of the creator. That's the original audience. That's the original intent. And notice the communal language, all of us, we, there's communal perspectives to this. Sometimes our biggest problems when we engage with the scriptures is we immediately ask the selfish question of what does this mean for me and how does this affect me individually? This is a communal thing. It's harsh. It's a harsh reality. Maybe it's different in the New Testament. Maybe it changes a little bit. Well, we could jump to the New Testament. We could jump to verses that are after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we could look at verses like Romans 3.23. All of us have sinned. For everyone has sinned. And we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Well, nope. We still got the everyone. We still have this sort of waywardness to us, to our own humanity. We could look at Romans 6.23. We could say for the wages of sin is death. And we could talk about the penalty of that. And it seems like what Isaiah was saying 400 years or several hundred years before Jesus even shows up on the scene is a similar pattern to the way you and I are now. Isaiah is speaking to a Jewish audience. Paul's speaking to a Gentile audience, which is all of us. So there seems to be a pattern, which means it's still important to talk about this. So we can't just sideswipe the reality of sin and brokenness. But... It also doesn't become any less communal either. It's not some individualistic thing. Why is this important? Because I want to talk about this in the context of evangelism. Evangelism. The Cross Equals Love series has typically been one to sort of energize us or re-energize us in the context of evangelism. Evangelism uh, comes from that word euangelion. It's a Greek word which just means good news. And over the years, evangelism turned into this practice, more of a verb. Evangelism is something that you do. You go and you declare good news to people. But how I understood it, based on my description of how I understood God and how I understood the gospel, evangelism was just me in my individual effort going to other individuals and pointing out their individual sin and using metaphors like it's a disease and you're disgusting to God, but Jesus is this cure. And so if you just pray this particular prayer, you'll get the cure and that would be it. And I would walk away and I would be able to tell my friends or tell my youth pastor, hey, I just shared the gospel with someone. I shared good news with them. That's, that's how I understood the cross and evangelism and the gospel and God's love for me. But over the years... After a while, I was realizing, oh, people are 
People are really turned off when you do stuff like that. People, people don't really react all that great to you telling them that they have a disease and that Jesus is the cure. They're not always responding super well to that. So then I figured, well, maybe it's not necessarily what I was saying, but how I was saying it. So I could just adjust my tone a little bit. I could change up my body demeanor, my body language a little bit more. And so I'd, you know, grow a little bit more, maybe mature a little bit more in my process of how I was sharing the gospel with people. But then it became a little bit more complicated. And it wasn't so much a question of it's not what you say, but how you say it. Now it was like, well, maybe it does matter what you say and it matters how you say it. Because early on in my ministry career, my full-time vocational ministry career, I was presented in my early 20s with an experience that kind of rocked me a little bit. It shook up my understanding of what sharing the gospel means. Uh, At my church at the time, we were starting to realize that this this topic of human trafficking was becoming more prevalent, becoming more talked about, needed to be addressed. And so we're talking about it on our staff. We're talking about it a little bit in our church as well. And then all of a sudden I realize I'm in this moment where I'm in a room with just a few young women who had literally just come out of being trafficked. They'd been kidnapped, abused, objectified, drugged in some cases, and just really used by other men. And in some cases, for some of them, other Christian men. And now here I am, a Christian man, And the encouragement to me is just share the gospel with them. How? How do you share the gospel with a group of people like this? When the only formed understanding that I had had about the gospel is just going to an individual and citing Isaiah 53 verse 6 or citing Romans 3.23, or citing Romans 6.23. Hey, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that the standard operating procedure in that moment? Is just to lay out how these women, well, you've gone wayward, you've left God's path. Is it a matter of what you say or how you say it or maybe something else? Put yourself in that room. What does sharing the gospel look like? Do I even talk about sin in this moment? Or whose sin do we talk about? Their sin? Should I talk about their sin in order to effectively share the gospel? Or do I talk about how they've been sinned against? I mean, I could, looking hindsight, I could have maybe talked about that. But in that way, in that moment in time, I hadn't even developed a concept for that idea that they had been sinned against. The the parameters that I had for my understanding of the gospel didn't make room for that concept. That these women had been victim to a horrific and several horrific acts. What does the gospel look like in a moment like that? Maybe in that moment, maybe that's the time I could bring in Isaiah 53 verse 7. I could talk about the suffering servant. I could talk about how this, you know, this is Jesus. He, he too was oppressed. He was treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before the shears. 
He didn't open his mouth. Maybe that's where I could go and say, hey, look, this is Jesus. And he identifies with your pain, with your suffering. Maybe. But even then it's like, well, okay, if this is Jesus, that, that whole process, that served a greater purpose. What purpose did these women serve? And along the way, I began to have conversations with other ministry leaders in my context. Like, I don't know what to do in a situation like this. I don't know how to effectively share the gospel because I feel like looking back that my understanding of the gospel is totally a sham. It's just completely incomplete. And they would say to me, well, you know, I get that they've been through a horrible circumstance, but Jared, I mean, you, you, still, have to, you still have to let them know that, you know, at some point, they got to come to face, face to face with the fact that they, they are sinful. I mean, it is true, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. So at some point, you're going to have to tell them that so that they can understand their need for Jesus. And so it became a question of, I don't know if it's a what I say, I don't know if it's a how I say it. I, in some ways, I just wanted to throw the whole thing out and just say, you know what, forget it. It's not even worth it if my understanding of the gospel is only for the purpose of helping somebody acknowledge their sin and how they are separated from God, but Jesus is the cure. How do I deal with circumstances like this? I'm not sure I want to be a part of that. And in fact, that is pretty much 100% of the time the case for all of these people who are deconstructing their faith. They grew up with the same kind of experience I did, the same kind of idea about God, that God is like Uncle Frank. Look what you did, you little jerk. That's their perspective of God all growing up. And now they're confronted with these situations, whether it has to do with injustice or human trafficking or sexuality or gender, and their minds can't make sense of it. And so they stop trying and they give up on it. And they see other churches and other ministry leaders and other pastors digging their heels in the ground and saying, nope, we're just going to go for it because the gospel is offensive. I can't be part of that. There's got to be another way. There's got to be a way through, a compassionate way, a humble way to reflect the actual image of God. So I began to wonder, what if it's not so much a question of, well, it's a what or a how. What if it's actually a combination of a whole bunch of things? What if it matters what you say? And it matters how you say it. And it matters why you say it. And it matters where you say it. And it matters when you say it. What do I mean by that? So I think the problem of how evangelism has been done over the last, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years is that we misunderstand the starting point of our story. We misunderstand our place with God. 
What I mean by that is we start our story. We start the story of humanity with Genesis 3, not in Genesis 1. How many of you have read a novel and you decided, you know what, today I'm going to start this novel in chapter 3. I'm going to skip chapters 1 and 2 and just read on from there. That would be a weird move. That would be strange, right? You're going to be really lost in the rest of that book. And you're going to be wondering, what, wait, wait, I'm not even sure who this character is. I'm not, I'm not sure like how we got here. Nobody would do that. And yet, the church in America, ministry leaders and pastors have been doing this with the scriptures for years. We have started the story in Genesis 3, not in Genesis 1. What is Genesis 3 all about? It's the fall. That's where we have to start the story. We can't talk about good news unless we have the bad news first. We need to make sure that people understand that they are disgusting in the presence of God. But because of his love and his grace, now through Jesus, you can be in his presence. We start the story with fear and shame and pain. And then we move forward from there. And then we wonder why it's so difficult trying to peel back the layers of all of the fear and shame-based messages that we received in the gospel because we start in Genesis 3, not in Genesis 1. Well, what is Genesis 1? Genesis 1 is the story, the narrative account of God creating. He's creating all of these things and he's saying it is good and it's good and that is good. And then he gets to humanity and he says, no, 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 it's not good. It is very good. It's very good. And there's communal and covenant relationship that is built in love. This God is different than the other gods that are presented in the ancient world. This God creates not out of violence. This God creates out of love. Our story starts in Genesis 1. Our story starts with goodness and with love. That is our starting point. Not fear and shame and disgust. Our story starts love. So the problem when we start our story with Genesis 3 is that love, our definition of love, gets really distorted, gets really incomplete. Because if we start our story in Genesis 3, then love is merely just an antidote to a problem that you and I all have. But if we start it in Genesis 1, then we realize that love is actually the reason you and I exist in the first place. See, think about this. God is love, right? We say that God is love. If God is love, then when God creates, his creation is out of a outpouring of his love. His creation is a result of his love. And if humanity is created in love, then that's our starting point. That's where we start. Not in Genesis 3. We need to develop we need to adopt a regular confession of his love for us, that he loved us first. A couple weeks ago, I, I brought back some statements from a Lutheran or Catholic liturgy that I had had at previous church experiences that what words were sort of dead and wrote. Maybe some of you grew up in a Lutheran or Catholic church and it just kind of became this rhythmic thing that you did. It sort of lost its meaning for you. I've actually uh, sort of had this re-energizing profound moment with the liturgy of all things and specifically with this confession. I I want us to practice a confession of love, that this is rooted in love. 
as we go throughout our week. And I talked about this first phrase, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. Now that kind of sounds like it starts with a Genesis 3 sort of feel. It starts with the bad news, and I understand that. But as we continue to read on, it says this, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. I highlighted that phrase for just a moment because too often we think about the gospel, we think about sin, and we think about our individual contributions to sin, how I personally have sinned against someone or something. Very rarely do we talk about by what we have left undone. See, silence in the face of injustice is an undone act that's sinful. We're called to so much more. We are called to participate in the righteousness and the justice that God is doing in our world. He wants to do that in and through us. So if we leave it undone, we're just as culpable as the things that we have done. This is part of our confession of love, but this is the part that I really want you to see in the next section. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I don't want to mess with church history and those that have gone before us and start changing and adding things, but I am going to, for just this moment, don't tell anybody, okay? I am going to add a phrase at the end. I wonder if this reads just a little bit differently. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves because we have forgotten that you loved us first. See, the whole reason our vision is to reclaim our identity in Jesus. People ask, why do you use that word reclaim? Reclaim assumes that you had something before and that you're supposed to go get it. Shouldn't it just be claim your identity in Jesus? Say no, because our story starts in Genesis 1. We had a perfect love that existed before. We lost it in Genesis 3. So yes, we are going to reclaim what was stolen from us, what was lost from us. We forget that he loved us first. That's why we can't figure out how to love ourselves. That's why we can't love our neighbors. That's why we have difficulty loving God. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may, check out this word, delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. We don't talk about delight enough. We don't talk about God's goodness and joy enough. Church is this, this, well, I got to go to church. I got to do these things. I got to not watch rated R movies. I got to not have sex before marriage. That's the Christian life. Yay. Like, how is that compelling to anybody? No, we delight in his will to walk in his ways, which is filled with joy and peace and goodness. I don't want to live the Christian life because it's an obligation, because I don't want to screw up, because God is like Uncle Frank saying, look what you did, you little jerk. No. My story starts with love, and so does yours. You're already loved. You're already chosen. I know who I am because the word he has spoken. How do we do this? I practice a confession of love. But then our conversations with others, our interactions with others are now an outpouring of that love that we continue to live into. As you go throughout your week, as you prepare to think about maybe somebody who you might invite to church or to Easter or something like that to start the conversation of somebody else's story with love. You don't need to convince them of some brokenness in the world. They know, people know we live in a broken world. What they don't know is that they're loved. 
start the conversation of somebody else's story with love? How do you do that? Well, what if they, what if they reject me? Or you know, what, if, what if they disagree with me? Or what if they just straight up don't want to have to hear what I have to say? I wonder if we could take on the demeanor of Jesus. I want to show that once again in verse 7, Isaiah chapter 53. He was oppressed, treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Why do we feel this necessity to take on a defensive posture when somebody disagrees with us? See, here's the good news. We don't have to be offensive. We also don't have to be defensive. We just have to be spirit-led. Be spirit-led. Be led by the spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now in you and me. It's a spirit that brings about freedom, but also there's a result of the spirit living within us, of us communing with God's spirit. It's called fruit. I love fruit. If I could bring a big bag of oranges that I got recently from the store that are perfect, they are perfect. They smell good and they just make me feel happy. Think about the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Think about gentleness. We don't talk about gentleness enough. When I think about gentleness, I think about when I have to put my kids to bed. I need to be gentle. Not get upstairs, brush your teeth. Stop messing around. Get under your covers. And then once they finally get in their beds, sometimes I read a story. Sometimes I'll play a song for them on the guitar. I'm not going to play nearly as good as David. But I went to the Bible camp and I started working at the Bible camp that I went to as a kid. And I had an opportunity along with other counselors to start reshaping the narrative for how we present, what we present, why we present, whatever it is that we present. And everybody had to learn guitar. It was kind of a non-negotiable. Yeah, if you had G, C, and D, you were pretty much good to go. You could play all of the camp songs. But if you wanted extra credit, you could play a little extra. Maybe start picking or something like that. And I learned one of these songs, and then I started using it. Every time I couldn't get my kids to settle down for bedtime, I would play this song, and all of a sudden, got them to kind of chill out and go to sleep a little bit. When you think about gentleness, it's not so much going like this. like trying to sing the blues. All right, go to sleep. Like that, that's not gentle, right? That doesn't really lead to anything. And so instead, try to create an atmosphere where they can experience love and grace, protection, truth, about who God is, about who they are, that I love them too. And so there was one song that kind of always, always helped when something like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound Saved a wretch like me Once was lost, but now am found Was blind, but now I see Hallelujah. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound Saved a wretch like me I once was lost, but now am found Was blind, but now I see Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia Alleluia, alleluia Alleluia, alleluia Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia If you want to start somebody else's story with love, maybe start with gentleness. When I think about gentleness, I think about a lullaby that provides protection and security, goodness, peace. This is what God invites us into, but also this is what God calls us to participate in. This is an incredible opportunity. Some of you have grown up the same way that I did, where your story started with fear and shame and manipulation, and it presented this image of God that made you terrified. And so there's this anxiety of, well, I got to go back to church so that I can get resaved again. That's not the gospel. You belong. He loves you. His grace is overflowing for you. It does not run out for you. You're already loved. You're already chosen. Would you pray with me? God, would you continue to reshape our vision of who you are? I pray for healing for those of us who have developed destructive images of you. There were were things that were said to us, there were things that were presented to us about you from the scriptures to make us feel like you just couldn't stand to be with us. And we were just a constant disappointment to you. God, would you begin to replace those images with a gentle, loving, compassionate Father who dearly loves us. And might we be able to go out throughout our week saying, I'm already loved. I'm already chosen. Welcome back. I hope you appreciated Pastor Jared's message. Uh, I know I did. I really appreciated the the ways that he challenged our understanding of evangelism and what it means to share the gospel in what I think are some really insightful and helpful ways. So uh, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that this week you find opportunities to share the good news in the way that Pastor Jared talked about with those around you. 
but also if you're going through anything this week whether because of the sermon or just stuff in general we want to be there to support you so please reach out let us know what prayer requests you may have via that connect card again but i hope that this week you not only come to experience god and and experience his love yourself but that you feel so full of that love and of that experience that you're encouraged and emboldened to share it with other people and to tell other people about jesus and and starting with uh, who we were created to be and and how god loves us Um, but take advantage of those opportunities when you see them have a blessed week and we'll talk to you again real soon